Let me have you turn to Isaiah 25, if you would. We're one week away from Advent, and so we get, uh, we get to think about Advent a week in advance of Advent so that we can really think about Advent when we get to Advent next week, first Sunday in Advent. This is a great passage of Scripture. It's one of the most hopeful, uh, one of the most powerful passages, I think, anywhere to be found in the Scriptures, and it continues the theme of the latter days, the last days, the, the end days that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Micah. You'll remember that Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries, prophets to both kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. Dark days for those folks. You think it's dark now? Dark days for those folks. So hear this word of God, Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, give us your spirit again. You've given us your word, but we need your spirit to make your word effectual for our salvation. Please, oh God, open our eyes, soften our hearts. I have no idea what needs to be done in the hearts of your people this day. I have some idea what needs to be done in my heart. But for all of us, our hearts need to be softened and made pliable and receptive to your words. So come by your spirit and cause us to see and understand and embrace and be changed by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Those of you who have uh, read J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, the three books. I see some nods. I'm glad to see those nods. Uh, Those of you who have read the books or who have seen the films, by the way, if you've seen the films and haven't read the books, you really need to read the books because the books are way better than the films. Way better. Bigger, larger, just hugely compelling. Wonderful story. Great story. I read it. It was in my last year in seminary. When I first read The Lord of the Rings, I was growing weary, and I needed a distraction. And I found one, and it was glorious. Uh, So if you've read them or if you've seen the movies, you know that in the second of those 
books or in the second of the films, The Two Towers, there is this scene where Theoden, who is king of Rohan, has become a sleepy, enervated, meaning he's lost all of his vigor, complacent, lethargic king. And the reason is that he has been seduced. A spell has been cast over him by the evil wizard, Saruman. And Saruman has an agent, and the agent is worm tongue. Snaky speech, I guess you could, you could sort of call it. Worm tongue. And worm tongue, who is an evil influence in Rohan and an evil influence over the king, casts this spell, and the king is left seduced by the lie. By the lie that, that the evil is inevitable. That the forces marshaled at Isengard and Mordor cannot be withstood. He's been terrorized by a lie. And Gandalf, who, who is, you know, this interesting combination of a kind of a Christ figure, he, he sort of dies and then he comes back with greater powers. It's interesting. But he's also a prophetic voice. He comes to Rohan and he makes his way into the king's chamber and he delivers the king from the spell. And the king then, having been delivered from the spell, having been delivered from the lie, rises up to lead his people. You know, sometimes, now I don't know, but maybe, maybe you need to be preaching and I need to be sitting. But way too many times in my life as a Christian who knows in his head that the King of Glory is risen and ascended and at the right hand of the Father, who is reigning over all things, whose force cannot be withstood, sometimes I look at the world around me. I look at the forces of Isengard and the forces of Mordor, and I believe the lie, and I am seduced into a lethargy because snaky speech, Mr. Wormtongue, has persuaded me that the forces of evil and darkness can't be withstood. And I'm glad to see people shaking their heads, not nodding them, but shaking them and saying, no, the king of glory reigns. And the force of the kingdom of glory cannot be withstood by anything in heaven or on earth. The days of Micah and Isaiah were dark days. I've had enough conversations with you to know that you look at these days and you see dark days. The days of Micah and Isaiah were dark days. They were contemporaries, as I said. They were contemporaries who preached to both kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Micah and Isaiah, and this is so very important, folks. I, I want to plead with you, okay? I'm not picking a fight, okay? I just want to ask you to listen to the Bible and the way the Bible talks, okay? 
I don't want you to listen to the way popular culture talks, and I don't want you to listen to the way popular... I'm not picking a fight. Okay, I'm not. But I don't want you to listen to the way popular evangelicalism talks. I want you to listen to the way the Bible talks about history. Micah and Isaiah, from their vantage point, in the midst of dark days, were at the end of what Moses saw centuries before. When God, through Moses, said to Israel, if you remember Deuteronomy 4, verses 26 to 31, that down the hallway of history, down the corridors of history, the Israelites would be seduced, they would play the harlot with false gods, and because of their sin, this cycle would begin to unfold. Sin leading to judgment, judgment resulting in exile, but then Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 and 31, the first time you hear the phrase in the Bible, in the latter days you will return to me says the Lord, in the latter days. Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 and 31. And that's what Moses could see. Now Isaiah and Micah find themselves in those days that Moses could see down the hallway of history. Israel has done what God had warned them about. They've forsaken the one true God who gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, cities they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, a fruitful land. They've enjoyed the harvest. They've enjoyed the peace. They've enjoyed the prosperity. And they turned away from the one true God and played the harlot with the false gods of the Canaanites. That's what they've done. You can read Isaiah chapter 3. There's a warning in Isaiah 3 toward Jerusalem and Judah that this judgment is going to come. Why? Because of sin, because of spiritual adultery. And what's going to result? They're going to be exiled. But throughout the minor prophets and the major prophets, Micah, Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, throughout the major and minor prophets liberally sprinkled through these sermons about judgment and these summons to repentance are these words of hope all over the place. I said to the women on Friday morning at the women's refuge, which, you know, it just kind of happened, those wonderful coincidences where what I'm thinking about in preparation for Sunday slams into something on Friday morning. There's a passage from Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 8. You can go read Zechariah chapter 8. It uses this phrase, on that day, in those days. I said to the folks on Friday morning, this phrase from Deuteronomy, in the latter days, is like a rucksack. You know what a rucksack is? It's something you use when you go camping. And when you go camping, what do you put in the rucksack? Stuff. And you keep stuffing stuff in the rucksack. It's like a backpack. You put stuff in a backpack. And that little phrase in the latter days that first appears in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is like a rucksack. And across the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, stuff gets stuffed into that rucksack. Stuff like what we looked at two weeks ago. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 to 8. Isaiah chapter 19 verses 16 to 25. Jeremiah chapter 30 verses 5 to 11. Hosea chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. But there are many, many more passages in the Old Testament that use these phrases 
that all derive from that phrase that Moses first employed in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in the latter days. On that day, in those days, at that time, afterward, they all convey the same thing. They're all pointing to the same thing. They all reflect this same cycle, sin and judgment and exile and restoration. And restoration. The promise of restoration. And this passage, Isaiah 25, is one of those passages that got stuffed in the rucksack of the Old Testament so that at the appropriate time, all the stuff that got stuffed in the rucksack could be pulled out piece by piece by piece in order to see its fulfillment. Okay? And this is one of those passages. Isaiah 25. What's being said here? Look at verse 9. It will be said on that day. On that day. There it is again. That little phrase, on that day, in those days, in the latter days, whatever it is, every time you see that, and I, didn't ch- I challenge you to do this. I challenge the women on Friday morning to do this. Go take a weekend. Read the major and minor prophets and list the number of times that you see that phrase, in that day, in those days, in the latter days, at that time, afterward, any one of those five or six phrases, and look at them. Pay close attention to him. Sometimes, as is true in Isaiah 23, sometimes the phrase in that day will refer to a specific event that is soon to take place. Most of the time, it's very easy to determine from the context what the phrase in that day or in those days is referring to. And the vast majority of those times, the vast majority of those times, it's referring to this great, decisive, intrusive, powerful act of God after exile when restoration comes. On that day, on that day, verse 9, on what day? What day is God talking about? What day is Isaiah referring to? Well, it's the day that is described in verses 6 and 7 and 8. And look at what is said. Verses 6 and 7 and 8. On this mountain, first of all, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. For all peoples. That's something else I just, you know, encourage you as you read these passages. Notice the number of times the nations are in view. Not just a nation, but the nations. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Rich food. The word in the original can literally be translated fatness. Remember from, from the peace offerings in Leviticus, the peace offerings were fat offerings. The fat was offered first. It's the Fat that gives the aroma. It's the fat that is a symbol of abundance. Hey, again, I'm not picking a fight, but you don't see skinny people where there isn't abundance. I mean, you don't see fat people where there isn't abundance. Sorry, I got that a little backwards. You don't see fat people. You don't see fatness where there isn't abundance. Where there is abundance... There is fatness. It's a metaphor, a picture of the fullness, the blessedness of the kingdom. 
fatness, full of marrow. You're going to eat dinner on Thursday, my guess is. Most of you are going to eat so much, you're going to have to lie on a couch or sit in a chair afterwards and be mesmerized by an insignificant, inconsequential football game in order to digest all that you've consumed. A spread, a banquet of rich foods and of aged wines, of aged wines, wines that rest on the lees, is the way you literally translate it. A feast of well-aged wine, wine that rests on the lees. What is that? What are the lees? Well, the lees are the dregs, the sediment that goes to the bottom. And the longer a wine rests on the lees, the deeper and darker and richer and more full-bodied it becomes. Now, If a wine is able to rest on the lees for a long time, what does that tell you about the circumstances where the wine is resting? Peace. Tranquility. Safety on the borders. Well-aged wine resting on the lees over a long period of time. Went to a restaurant in Philadelphia last week while we were at the conference. Sat for four days, so I decided I needed to go sit some more and sat in a restaurant. Looked at the wine list. There was a bottle of wine on the wine list that would have cost us $2,500. $2,500. That's wine, I think, that has rested long on the lees. <laughs> That is well-aged wine. It's rich, it's deep, it's full-bodied, and it's valuable. See, these metaphors communicate things. They convey things. What's the picture that's being conveyed in Isaiah 25? Abundance. Fruitfulness. And you know what else? The gladness that comes with the abundance and the fruitfulness. The scriptures say, the scriptures say this, that it is wine that makes the heart glad. Now, don't be confused about what's being said there. It's not because you get a buzz. When the scriptures convey the idea that it is wine that makes the heart glad, what is being said is that the consumption of wine, the enjoying of wine, along with rich foods and all the rest, suggests something about the circumstances of those who are enjoying the wine and the food. There's fullness. There's peace. There's rest. There's delight. That's what's being described in verse 6 of chapter 25. But here's the striking thing about it. Here's the striking thing about it. E.J. Young, in his commentary on this passage, describes this legitimately. E.J. Young is an Old Testament professor, Westminster Theological Seminary, very smart guy, knew all the languages, knew the whole deal. E.J. Young says, what is being described in verse 6 is a coronation feast. A coronation feast. In other words, the king, whose hand, verse 10, 
will rest on the mountain. The king has ascended his throne. The king has been enthroned to rule and to reign, to govern in righteousness, to bring peace to his realm. And in celebration of his coronation, this king does what all other kings do. He holds a feast. But here's the difference. The kings of the earth ask the servants of the kingdom to prepare the feast for him. But in the kingdom of God, it is the king who goes to the kitchen, who goes to the wine cellar, who prepares the food, who brings the wine up from the wine cellar and says to his servants, come and eat the feast that I prepare for you. You find me you find me in all of the religions of the world a religion like that. There is only one where the king, the king of glory, King Jesus, leaves his throne, descends to the kitchen to prepare a rich feast and banquet for his servants who were his enemies. You know, here's the rucksack. Let me just ask you this question. Has that day come? Has that day come where the king has descended the throne? Where the, the king has left his throne behind? Where the king of glory has become the servant of all so that his enemies might be seated at his table, so that he, the king of glory, might sit at that table with them to enjoy a rich feast. Has that day come? Yeah. But no. Yeah. But no. See? That's where we are. Here's this old song that just kind of flew into my head by Steeler's Wheel. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, Steeler's Wheel, stuck in the middle with you. That's where you are, friends. You're stuck in the middle. But you're not stuck in a bad way. You're stuck with the king, King Jesus, who's come, who's brought the latter days with him when he came who by this decisive act of incarnation and obedience and death and resurrection and ascension and rule and reign has brought the latter days. Have you tasted the Holy Spirit? Has the fullness of the ages come upon you? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. These are the latter days. The sun comes. He brings them with him. When the king descends the throne and comes into the world, he brings the latter days. Are they here in fullness? No, they're not. Are we waiting for them? Yes, we are. Have they come? Yes, they have. You get confused, can't you? 
Is it here or not? Yes and no. You live, you live in union with the King of glory who's given you first tastes of the feast that he's preparing. New Testament is so striking in this respect. You remember John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, and Jesus' first miracle where he first displayed his glory? Sometimes when we read the Gospels, I think we get this idea that Jesus is just showing off. You know, he's displaying his power. He's kind of showing us what he can do. There's so much more going on, obviously, than Jesus just showing his power. You remember the story. There's a wedding, uh, and they've run out of wine. And the steward, you know, the manager, he's like the MC for the whole program. He gets hired to do this. He gets hired to prepare for the wedding. He gets hired to execute the wedding. They run out of wine. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the family, and it's embarrassing for the steward, the master of the feast. That's what he's called, the master of the feast. And so Mary, you know the story, John chapter 2. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they don't have, they, they've run out of wine. This is embarrassing. This is a social faux pas. Jesus, and I'm not quite sure what the nature of his response is. I think probably Jesus is just a bit frustrated with his mother who doesn't get the bigger picture. All she's concerned about is the social embarrassment for the family, for the master of the feast. Oh, Ma, Ma, don't you get it? There's a lot more going on here. And so what does Jesus do? He performs a miracle. And what does the steward say? What does the master of the feast say? This is very unusual. Every other party I've been at, there's good wine, there's bad wine. People consume the good wine, then they consume the Boone's Farm apple wine. (laughs) Sorry. Then they consume the bad stuff. But you, you have brought out the best Wine, the wine that has lain long on the lees, that's deep and rich and full-bodied. And what is Jesus saying? I am the greater master of the greater feast. I am the king of glory who fulfills Isaiah 25, who comes down from the throne and who lays the feast, who spreads the feast so that the servants might sit at table with the king of glory and rejoice. You got to read the New Testament with different eyes sometimes. And see the stuff that is stuffed in the rucksack that gets pulled out in the New Testament showing us the greater king, the greater glory, and the whole purpose of Christ's coming, leaving the throne, descending to spread a feast for his people. Has the day come? Yes and no. How about verse 7? Why is it that there can be this feast of rich food and well-aged wines, verses 7 and 8? I wish we could camp on this for a half an hour. 
but let me just read them. Why is it that there can be rejoicing? Why is it that the people of God in the midst of darkness can be a people of joy? Why is it that the people of God in the midst of adverse circumstances can be a people who celebrate? Because, verse 7, on this mountain, the very same mountain where the feast will be laid, he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth for the Lord has spoken. Let me ask you, has that day come? Has that day come? There you are again. Yes and no. Yes, it has. Let me ask you, the veil, the veil is a mourning veil. It is a veil that covers mourners. It is a death shroud that covers the dead. Let me ask you, is that veil being removed? Yeah, it is. Is it fully removed? No, it's not. Is it still cast over many nations? Yes, it is. Has it been released and taken away from many other nations? You're the nations. The veil of death has been removed from you. You've tasted the future. And there's more to come. Has that day come? Yes, it has. When Jesus died, he destroyed death. When he rose from the tomb, he secured life. I had a conversation this last week with a couple new, new to our church. And he was telling me about his son's best friend's wife. They've been married for a year. She's 25 years old. They discovered a melanoma. She is dying of cancer. She is a Christian. Will they grieve? Yes. Will they grieve as those who have no hope? They will grieve with hope. Because the day has come that points ahead to its greater fulfillment. Read 1 Corinthians 15. I wish I had time to read it. Read what Paul says. Who is the last enemy to be destroyed? It is death. And then will be fulfilled the saying which is said, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? A lot of people in this room I don't know very well. But I want you to understand this. I would not do what I do every Sunday morning and every occasion I get to do it. I would not do what I do if I did not believe and did not know that the day had come, that the king had descended, come down from his throne and secured the blessings of that table by his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. There's no need to. I'd rather be in bed if these things are not true. But if I were to preach that 25-year-old woman's funeral sermon, I could look squarely in the faces of those parents as one who himself has a 25-year-old daughter. And I could say to those parents, this is not the end. This is not the end. 
because the king has come and he has descended the throne and he has secured by his death and his resurrection everything that Isaiah saw down the hallway of history, down the corridor of history. And that resurrection of Christ and ascension of Christ represents the promise that he makes to you. So get this clear. Understand this, and I'm not picking a fight. What I'm trying to do is secure your hope in the person and work of Jesus the King who has come and who, when he has come, brings the latter days with him. Listen to the Bible. That is my hope. They have come, they are here, and they will be fulfilled when he returns. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please secure our hope with these things. Fix our hope upon you. And Lord Jesus Christ, in these, what seem to us to be desperate times, what seem to us to be dark times, would you, by the power of your spirit, please have mercy upon us. Come and be among us. Dwell among us. Rule and reign among us, not ultimately for our good, though we'll enjoy the good of it, but for the sake of your name and for those around us. Lord Jesus Christ, give evidence in me and in each of us here at Christ the King. Give evidence to the world around that you are the King of glory, ruling and reigning, and you have inaugurated these days so that you might be praised in all the earth. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me have you stand and we'll sing number 457. Come thou fount of every blessing. And let me just uh, say to you that following the hymn, I'll deliver the benediction. We'll have about a 10-minute time for fellowship. And then we'll gather everyone here. And we certainly welcome anyone who wants to stay for this uh, brief congregational meeting. We'd love for you to stay, um, but there'll be about a 10-minute break.